Chapter Four of Martin Eden by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four. Martin Eden, with blood still crawling from contact with his brother-in-law, felt his way along the unlighted back hall and entered his room, a tiny cubbyhole with space for a bed, a washstand, and one chair. Mr. Higginbotham was too thrifty to keep a servant when his wife could do the work. Besides, the servant's room enabled them to take in two boarders instead of one. Martin placed the Swinburne in the browning on the chair, took off his coat, and sat down on the bed. A screeching of asthmatic springs greeted the weight of his body, but he did not notice them. He started to take off his shoes, but fell to staring at the white plaster wall opposite him, broken by long streaks of dirty brown where rain had leaked through the roof. On this befouled background, visions began to flow and burn. He forgot his shoes and stared long, till his lips began to move and he murmured, Ruth, Ruth. He had not thought a simple sound could be so beautiful. It delighted his ear, and he grew intoxicated with the repetition of it. Ruth. It was a talisman, a magic word to conjure with. Each time he murmured it, her face shimmered before him, suffusing the foul wall with a golden radiance. This radiance did not stop at the wall. It extended on into infinity, and through its golden depths his soul went questing after hers. The best that was in him was out in splendid flood. The very thought of her ennobled and purified him, made him better, and made him want to be better. This was new to him. He had never known women who had made him feel better. They had always had the counter-effect of making him feel beastly. He did not know that many of them had done their best, bad as it was. Never having been conscious of himself, he did not know that he had that in his being that drew love from women, and which had been the cause of their reaching out for his youth. Though they had often bothered him, he had never bothered about them and he would never have dreamed that there were women who would have been better because of him. Always in sublime carelessness had he lived, till now, and now it seemed to him that they had always reached out and dragged at him with vile hands. This was not just to them, nor to himself. But he, who for the first time was becoming conscious of himself, was in no condition to judge, and he burned with shame as he stared at the vision of his infamy. He got up abruptly and tried to see himself in the dirty looking-glass over the washstand. He passed a towel over it and looked again, long and carefully. It was the first time he had ever really seen himself. His eyes were made for seeing, but up to that moment they had been filled with the ever-changing panorama of the world, at which he had been too busy gazing ever to gaze at himself. He saw the head and face of a young fellow of twenty, but being unused to such appraisement, he did not know how to value it. Above a square-domed forehead he saw a mop of brown hair, nut-brown, with a wave to it and hints of curl that were a delight to any woman, making hands tingle to stroke it, and fingers tingle to pass caresses through it. But he passed it by as without merit, in her eyes, and dwelt long and thoughtfully on the high square forehead striving to penetrate it and learn the quality of its content. What kind of a brain lay behind there? Was his insistent interrogation. What was it capable of? 
How far would it take him? Would it take him to her? He wondered if there were soul in those steel-gray eyes that were often quite blue of color and that were strong with the briny airs of the sun-washed deep. He wondered, too, how his eyes looked to her. He tried to imagine himself, she, gazing into those eyes of his, but failed in the jugglery. He could successfully put himself inside other men's minds, but they had to be men whose ways of life he knew. He did not know her way of life. She was wonder and mystery, and how could he guess one thought of hers? Well, they were honest eyes, he concluded, and in them was neither smallness nor meanness. The brown sunburn of his face surprised him. He had not dreamed he was so black. He rolled up his shirt-sleeve and compared the white underside of the arm with his face. Yes, he was a white man, after all. But the arms were sunburned, too. He twisted his arm, rolled his biceps over with his other hand, and gazed underneath, where he was least touched by the sun. It was very white. He laughed at his bronzed face in the glass, at the thought that it was once as white as the underside of his arm. Nor did he dream that in the world there were few pale spirits of women who could boast of fairer or smoother skins than he, fairer than where he had escaped the ravages of the sun. His might have been a cherub's mouth, had not the full, sensuous lips a trick, under stress, of drawing firmly across the teeth. At times, so tightly did they draw, the mouth became stern and harsh, very ascetic. They were the lips of a fighter and of a lover. They could taste the sweetness of life with relish, and they could put the sweetness aside and command life. The chin and jaw, strong and just hinting of square aggressiveness, helped the lips to command life. Strength balanced sensuousness and had upon it a tonic effect, compelling him to love beauty that was healthy, and making him vibrate to sensations that were wholesome and between the lips were teeth that had never known nor needed the dentist's care. They were white and strong and regular, he decided, as he looked at them. But as he looked he began to be troubled. Somewhere, stored away in the recesses of his mind and vaguely remembered, was the impression that there were people who washed their teeth every day. They were people from up above, people in her class. She must wash her teeth every day, too. What would she think if she learned that he had never washed his teeth in all the days of his life? He resolved to get a toothbrush and form the habit. He would begin at once, tomorrow. It was not by mere achievement that he could hope to win her. He must make a personal reform in all things, even to tooth-washing and neck-gear, though a starched collar affected him as a renunciation of freedom. He held up his hand, rubbing the ball of the thumb over the calloused palm, and gazing at the dirt that was ingrained in the flesh itself, and which no brush could scrub away. How different was her palm! He thrilled deliciously at the remembrance. Like a rose petal, he thought, cool and soft as a snowflake. He had never thought that a mere woman's hand could be so sweetly soft. He caught himself imagining the wonder of a caress from such a hand and flushed guiltily. It was too gross a thought for her. In ways it seemed to impugn her high spirituality. She was a pale, slender spirit, exalted far beyond the flesh.
but nevertheless the softness of her palm persisted in his thoughts. He was used to the harsh callousness of factory girls and working women. Well he knew why their hands were rough, but this hand of hers, it was soft because she had never used it to work with. The gulf yawned between her and him at the awesome thought of a person who did not have to work for a living. He suddenly saw the aristocracy of the people who did not labor. It towered before him on the wall, a figure in brass, arrogant and powerful. He had worked himself. His first memory seemed connected with work, and all his family had worked. There was Gertrude. When her hands were not hard from the endless housework, they were swollen and red, like boiled beef, what of the washing. And there was his sister Marion. She had worked in the cannery the preceding summer, and her slim, pretty hands were all scarred with the tomato knives. Besides, the tips of two of her fingers had been left in the cutting machine at the paper-box factory the preceding winter. He remembered the hard palms of his mother as she lay in her coffin. And his father had worked to the last fading gasp. The horned growth of his hands must have been half an inch thick when he died. But her hands were soft, and her mother's hands, and her brother's. This last came to him as a surprise. It was tremendously indicative of the highness of their caste, of the enormous distance that stretched between her and him. He sat back on the bed with a bitter laugh, and finished taking off his shoes. He was a fool. He had been made drunken by a woman's face and by a woman's soft white hands. And then, suddenly, before his eyes, on the foul plaster wall, appeared a vision. He stood in front of a gloomy tenement house. It was night-time, in the east end of London, and before him stood Margie, a little factory girl of fifteen. He had seen her home after the bean-feast. She lived in that gloomy tenement, a place not fit for swine. His hand was going out to hers as he said good-night. She had put her lips up to be kissed, but he wasn't going to kiss her. Somehow he was afraid of her. And then her hand closed on his and pressed feverishly. He felt her calluses grind and grate on his, and a great wave of pity welled over him. He saw her yearning, hungry eyes, and her ill-fed female form, which had been rushed from childhood into a frightened and ferocious maturity. Then he put his arms about her, in large tolerance, and stooped and kissed her on the lips. Her glad little cry rang in his ears, and he felt her clinging to him like a cat. Poor little starveling! He continued to stare at the vision of what had happened in the long ago. His flesh was crawling as it had crawled that night when she clung to him, and his heart was warm with pity. It was a gray scene, greasy gray, and the rain drizzled greasily on the pavement stones. And then a radiant glory shone on the wall, and up through the other vision, displacing it, glimmered her pale face under its crown of golden hair, remote and inaccessible as a star. He took the Browning and the Swinburne from the chair and kissed them. Just the same, she told me to call again, he thought. He took another look at himself in the glass and said aloud, with great solemnity, Martin Eden, the first thing tomorrow you go to the free library and read up on etiquette, understand? 
He turned off the gas, and the spring shrieked under his body. But you've got to quit cussin', Martin, old boy. You've got to quit cussin', he said aloud. Then he dozed off to sleep and to dream dreams that for madness and audacity rivaled those of poppy-eaters. End of chapter 4